What is grace? Grace is community. Grace is passion. Grace is for everyone. We continue our series on Moses today after two weeks of some interesting topics. The first was Moses' birth, and we paired that with a look at the uh, Supreme Court ruling on abortion. Then last week we saw how Moses committed a heinous act. He murdered someone. He fled from his home, including the two cultures he came from, Hebrew and Egyptian. Instead of rejection, though, he found himself welcomed and accepted by the Midianites. Despite the wrong he did, this stranger, this foreigner, was brought into the family. He married one of the daughters of the priest, Ruel, and we saw how we, too, can welcome others into the church family. We accept others with open arms, despite what their heritage is or what they've done, because that's also what Jesus did. Now we look uh, at the next step in uh, in Moses' journey. This is the moment where uh, everything is going to change going forward for Moses. Hilda is going to read our scripture for us. Moses has settled in this new land. He has lived there for what Acts chapter 7 says is 40 years, but that likely just means a time period. It's like when we say to our children, How many times have I told you? And the answer is a lot, right? Uh, 40 isn't meant to be literal. It means much time has passed. Moses has forgotten all about his life as a Hebrew living in Egypt, as a prince of the king. He has a new life. He's done with all that. And then he encounters God. Let's hear about it from Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. I invite you now to hear the word of the Lord. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, come no closer, remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebuites them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that it is, and there shall, and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. 
But Moses said to God, if I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, thus you Lord shall say to the Israelites, the Lord of the God, the Lord of the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this my title for all generations. And from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, so if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, may we be an inclusive community, passionately following Jesus Christ. Work in us and through us. Teach us who you are today that we might live for you every day. Be our rock and our salvation. In Christ we pray. Amen. It's nice to be happy, isn't it? Many of us strive for it and organize our lives so that we can be happy, uh, but too often it can be elusive. Why are so many of us less happy than we were 5 or 10 or 20 years ago? Sometimes I feel that way. Uh, my wife Emily once asked me if I was happy after our first son was born. I paused for a second and I said very directly, no. And she was worried, what, what was the matter? How can I help? What can we do to improve the situation? And I said, what do you mean happy? All our money goes to feeding and clothing him. He keeps us awake all night and we never have time for each other. How could I be happy? And she said, but he's so cute. <laughs> and she was right. Davy was an exceptionally cute baby, but it can be hard to be happy when life doesn't go the way that you want it to. You can imagine for yourself one life and get something completely different. There was a journalist who went through that experience. Uh, when he was young, he published his own book, wrote for the biggest papers, and won an important journalism prize. And yet, yet he felt like things were just off. If he knew everything he would accomplish coming out of college, he said that's exactly the life that he would have chosen for himself. But he said he woke up every day feeling disappointed, like he was somehow a failure. Instead of seeing all that he had accomplished, he was stuck on how little he had done. He kept thinking how his life needed a big change, an exit hatch from the life that he had chosen. Some of you will recognize this description. We might call it the midlife crisis. One survey said that about 26% of people would say they have experienced this, you feel sad, unfulfilled, are stuck thinking about the past and may feel like life has no meaning or purpose. Life just doesn't sparkle the way that it used to. For our journalist, he tried to keep track of his blessings. He tried to reason his way into happiness, but nothing worked. And then he hit his 50s. He had an awful illness. He lost, felt happy, incrementally but distinctly happier than he was. How is that possible? Why would things get noticeably worse and he would be more happy? Well, people call this the 
U-curve of happiness. For many people, uh, the late teens are the pinnacle of our happiness, and it slowly decreases more and more until it bottoms out in our 40s and 50s, and then the trend reverses. We grow more and more content, happier with each passing year, often all the way until death. You can find that pattern all over the place. I think of the premarital counseling I do with couples. I always tell them, look, the wedding and honeymoon are the best. This is the happiest you'll be because life together is hard to do. For those that have children, those little rugrats are going to demand a lot of you. It's going to be decades of pain. And I know at this point, uh, many of the couples think, boy, we picked the wrong pastor to marry us. But then, then I tell them that things start to turn around. After a certain point, you'll grow in appreciation. You'll value your partner in this journey more and more. You'll come to a point where you actually love and cherish your partner more than you did on the wedding day. And that's the goal for many of us, that these relationships go through the ups and downs of life and become more important than ever. Our Vacation Bible School program begins tomorrow, and I know that is always a big event for the church. Uh, Chris has been leading that event for years and years, and I know she had a, a setback a couple of weeks ago. She found out that some of her volunteers had canceled on her. They said they were going to go on vacation instead. And I hear in the news that's happening a lot for people. COVID has kept people in place for a couple of years now. So summer vacation is back with a vengeance this year. But for those of us that are working hard on a program to help our young people experience God's love, that the church from where we get all our set decorations had canceled their vacation Bible school program and never told us, oh, that's an even bigger blow. But Chris, she's a vet. She's done this enough to power through. She rearranged the volunteers. She broke out all the decorations stored in the basement from all of our past events. And voila, the sets look great. You can even head over to Fellowship Hall after the service to check it out. She made it happen. And even though the program itself can be full of stress and has its challenges, by the end, we all say, that was so tough and so exhausting. When do we get to come back and do it again? It's the U-curve of happiness. In the book of Exodus, we see Moses going through something like this. He, He fled his home in the palace of Egypt and is with the shepherds of Midian. He spends years and years there, and I wouldn't be too surprised if he has some of those struggles that we feel in midlife. He's been doing this shepherding thing for a long time. It's nothing like his old life in the palace. And on top of it, his biological family, the Israelites, are still enslaved by the Egyptians. He may have intervened once before to help a Hebrew being beaten by an Egyptian, but the same evil keeps happening over and over. Moses knows the abuse is still happening. He can run from it, but his family can't. The abuse continues, and his family and tribe suffering. So as he's going about his daily life, tending the flock, maybe not finding as much meaning in it as he did in his palace life filled with culture and education, he sees something. It's a bush on fire, but not burning up. 
Lots of people have spent time on this point. There are plants with bright, beautiful leaves and flowers that could be described as burning. There's also a plant called dictamnus that excretes volatile fumes. And if you light a match near it, bursts into flames, but the flames quickly extinguish without injury to the plant. Others say desert light could reflect in a way that looks like fire. All of these, of course, are possible, but the far more important point is that whatever Moses saw drew him to the spot where God spoke. Whether it was a natural burning bush or supernatural, what really matters is what God says to Moses. God knows of Israel's suffering. God has heard their cries, and the Lord promises to deliver them. Perhaps the most unexpected part is that God says he will use Moses to deliver Israel. Moses' immediate response is to say that he can't do it. He says, who am I? Now, Moses was raised in the palace. We can guess that he had plenty of education. He would have learned about literature, writing, rhetoric, and the art of war. If you compared him to all the people around him, he would have been the most ready to do this job. Yet still, he says, he can't do it. A little later in the story, he will say that he isn't very eloquent. Egyptians prized a good speaker, so he may have felt like he just wasn't very good at the one thing that mattered most. But I also sense a hint of the U-curve of happiness. Moses is at a low point. He's at the bottom of the curve. He is not happy with himself or his life. He has run away from the problems of his family and his people. And though he has found a new home, he can't get away from his past. If you read on, you'll also see that his brother is coming to meet him. And maybe Moses isn't sure how he will be received by him. Will his brother hate him for running away? Will he be ashamed of him because he murdered an Egyptian? There's a long, drawn-out back and forth with Moses and God. God keeps telling Moses to do this thing, and Moses keeps saying he can't until eventually Moses does relent. But the most dramatic moment in this story is actually when Moses is saying he can't go and that he wouldn't even know the name of the God of his ancestors. If the Israelites asked which God sent you, he wouldn't even know how to respond. Maybe he was too young when he was sent to the Egyptians. In a world with so many names for gods, maybe he'd forgotten the one for Israel. Maybe the name of God had never been revealed before, and Moses is trying to point out how much more difficult his job is because of this. And God chooses this moment to reveal the divine name. God says, I am who I am. Many Bibles will have a note about this. Uh, It could also be translated, I am what I am, or I will be what I will be. Some say the name is from the verb to be, so God is saying his name is to exist or to cause to become. So you might understand God to be saying, my name is the one who causes everything in this world to exist. There's a lot of debate around this, though. We know the name of God is four letters long. The fancy name for it is the Tetragrammaton. Uh, Pronouncing the name in Judaism is considered such a sacred act that it is only done once a year on the Day of Atonement. 
God's name is thought of as so holy that just asking for forgiveness and saying God's name can cleanse you of sin. The rest of the year, though, no one would even utter God's name. Ancient Hebrew, like many other old languages, is written with consonants only, no vowels. Only later did people come along and add vowels so you could make sure you could say the words right. But to avoid saying the holy name of God when they shouldn't, Judaism substituted vowels from a different word. They came up with the word Jehovah as an alternate name for God. It's like how we would say Lord or Christ. It's not the name of Jesus, but everyone knows who you mean. But the literal name, the four letters Moses hears, are something like Y-H-W-H. We would say it today, Yahweh, the name of God. Some believe those letters are actually the sound we make when we breathe in and out, so that literally every breath we take is us saying the name of God. That would connect nicely with God being the one that causes to exist. With every breath in and out, God is there sustaining us. Without God and each breath we breathe, we cease to exist. Maybe we can talk about this idea more another day, but this is a huge moment. God is now revealed to Moses. With this information, Moses can go to Israel and say, look, I know who your God is. This is the beginning of Moses' life turning around. This is the start of his new mission to free Israel, to share the revelation of God, and maybe even the beginning of real happiness for himself. See, it isn't escaping his adopted grandfather king that makes him happy or taking one action to maybe help one abused israelite the revelation of god has moved him to help his entire nation i think the same is true for us too when god is revealed in our lives we become dissatisfied with small answers we are no longer happy with our youthful ways of thinking the years of downward and decreased happiness can be a kind of... I think of how when I was young, I thought I was happy when I got Christmas presents. Things made me happy. But now looking back on that, I think that's not a very healthy view of the world. Things can't truly make us happy. So as we get older, we start moving away from being satisfied with material possessions. We may have a nice home, a nice car. Things may look good on the outside with a, a lovely family, a job that does important things. But all those things can be gone in the blink of an eye. If that's how we measure happiness, we'll all end up sad and miserable. Instead, a transition often happens in us that makes us appreciate the beauty and mystery of life. Instead of saying, woe is me for every bad thing that ever happened, we start saying, woe, God is good. Look at this life that we get to live. Look at how God has made this world to work. I think of 2 Corinthians where I read earlier that when we are in Christ, we are a new creation. Everything has become new. If you keep reading, it says that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Sure, we do wrong. We err, we harm, we make mistakes. But God just keeps calling us back. 
revealing himself over and over that we would be inspired to not just do a little good, not just patch ourselves up and get back out there, but that we would be transformed. We would have a burning bush moment that catapults our life in a new direction. This is the wisdom you gain from a reflective life. These problems and trials aren't just bad luck. It's the springboard for a transformed life. In the book, The Art of Prayers, Prayer, there's a story of a woman named Jeannie. She had surgery on a tumor in her ear that damaged a, a facial nerve. She had paralysis and weakness on the left side of her face. Her hearing was so bad she needed a hearing aid. It also made all the food she ate always taste like wet cardboard. On top of that, her middle ear was damaged, which meant she had a, a constant ringing in her ears. She was dizzy and had to spend most of her days in bed or lying on the couch. She was like that for four years until someone from her church invited her to join with them for a Wednesday morning service. As she drove to the church, she says she heard a voice speaking to her, this could be the last time you drive to the church sick. It was strange to hear that because the doctors had already done everything in their power to help her. At the end of the church service, Jeannie went forward for prayer. She whispered to herself in prayer, Lord, please either heal me or let me die. I can't live with this illness any longer. And when she opened her eyes, she saw light all around her. From the center of the light, she sensed God's love washing over her, penetrating every part of her being. As she stood in the light, she could practically see the words in front of her that said, You are healed. Her hearing aid fell into her lap, and she could hear. The ringing was gone. The, the dizziness vanished. She could feel in every part of her body. She could walk without hitting into the doorframe. And after four long years of tasting absolutely nothing, it all came back. She couldn't wait to eat and finally taste again the food that she cooked. What a beautiful transformation. What a magnificent moment for this woman. And same can be true for every one of us. Not that we are definitely going to be healed or our bank accounts will be full. It's that through the power of God, we will be transformed. The burning bush moment for Moses is coming for us. God will be revealed, and when we respond to it and recognize the life God has called us to, we can't help but see the world differently. We aren't made happy with possessions or getting our own way or even as important as they are, our friends or family. What matters most is the work God is doing inside us to change the world. Amen? Amen. What is grace? Grace is community. Grace is passion. Grace is for everyone. 